Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to Daniel chapter 7. And I've got a confession to make. When we, uh, when we first launched this series, uh, Steve and I, we agreed to go through the book of Daniel. And I said this actually a number of times to my family. I was like, oh man, I, I really hope that, uh, that Steve preaches Daniel chapter 7. And uh, that, I don't, that I don't get that one. And uh, through the kind benevolence of God and His providence, here we are today. And uh, Daniel chapter 7. You see, this is, a, this is a passage that both preachers and lay people often flee from because we think it's too hard to understand. And it's got no practical relevance for our lives today. Daniel chapter 7, and really the rest of the book of Daniel, is written in the genre of apocalyptic literature. It's a genre which is very vivid, it's dramatic. It's visual in nature, involving powerful symbols and fantastical, is that a word? Fantastical, scary pictures that represent actual realities. Uh, there's sensational cosmic imagery. There's a heightened awareness of the supernatural world and, and uh, the, the good and evil behind what our eyes can normally see. But what surprises people often is that the main point of biblical apocalyptic writing is not to confuse people. <laughs> It's, uh, it's not to cause them to be afraid, ultimately. It's actually meant to provide a message of hope and encouragement for God's people. And Daniel's original audience really needed some hope and encouragement. In 605 B.C., the Babylonian Empire rose to global dominance, invaded the land of Judah where God's people dwelt. Uh, many of the Jews were taken uh, captive. They were scattered throughout the empire in an attempt to force God's people to assimilate to a Babylonian culture and served the empire, and Daniel was one of those captive um, exiles. And so it was a time of, of tremendous darkness for God's people, and all kinds of questions would have been going through their minds. Where is God? Has God forgotten us? When can we go home? Will we ever go home? Back, back to the land that God promised us? Or are we at the mercy of the uncontrollable forces of evil that seem to have their way? Psalm 137, which I shared with you in the very beginning of our series on, uh, in Daniel, I think it's apropos at, at the middle of the book of Daniel, I share it again. Psalm 137 captures the distress and the despair of God's people. It says, by the, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captives required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth sang, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And the book of Daniel is designed to answer that question for God's exiles then and now. And now uh, that the book of Daniel is for you, for you, whom the Bible calls elsewhere strangers and aliens and exiles in a world that is full of terrible evil that stands in hostile opposition to everything that you believe. A world which, at best, Christians are mocked and marginalized, as they are in America, and at worst, beheaded, as they are in many other places right now. And it's easy, like the Jews by the waters of Babylon, for us to sit and weep and feel like we have no reason to sing and praise God in a land that's not our home. But when we get to Daniel 7, we're going to see, with Daniel, a vision 
that on the one hand looks like something out of the most scary horror movie you have ever seen, but on the other hand, the darkness and the terrors of these night visions only serves to make the hope that God has for his exiled people shine all the more brightly and all the more glorious. So why don't you stand with me now as we read God's Word. I'm going to preach the whole chapter, but we're going to open our time right now by just reading one verse, verse 27, and then throughout the sermon we will walk through the whole chapter together. Verse 27, God's Word says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I come to you this morning physically and mentally exhausted and weak and unwise in the face of a, of a chapter that is so massive, which contains so many incredible realities that you want the people of God to know. So, Father, I need your help this morning. And, Father, I, I suspect there are others here who feel weak physically and mentally and spiritually. And so, Father, I pray that you would help the hearers of God's Word to receive encouragement and strength and understanding and illumination that only the Holy Spirit can provide. Above all else, I pray that you would show us Christ in your Word, because ultimately, that's what your Word is about. And if we miss Christ, we miss everything. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Despite appearances to the contrary, God is in control. That's the point of the book of Daniel in a nutshell, if you want to summarize it. I think that's a pretty good summary. And that's been the message that we've seen in these first six chapters of Daniel. And Daniel chapter 7, I, I, I regard as the, as the mountain peak in this entire book, it stands right in the middle of the book, and everything that has been happening prior has been building up to this moment, this vision, and everything that comes afterwards in the book flows out from this moment, and so now we are at the summit of Daniel, and we can take a look around, and we can see the whole world for what it really is. And the first thing we're going to see, looking at the vision of Daniel, is the horror of evil the horror of evil. Look at verse 1. It says that Daniel was given this vision in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, we've already read about the fall of Belshazzar uh, back in chapter 5, but Daniel isn't organizing his book chronologically. He's organizing it thematically. And from this point until the end of the book, he shifts from the genre of historical narrative, a court narrative, to a more apocalyptic style which is going to highlight and reinforce and paint in vivid colors the points that he's been making all along in chapters 1 through 6. Verse 1, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. 
Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, to the mind of the peoples in the ancient Near East, both among the, the pagan peoples and amongst the, the Jews, the sea is very often associated with evil, with chaos, with dark spiritual forces that are in opposition to God. And the Bible picks up on that imagery, and the Bible itself uses the sea as a symbol of wickedness and the rebellion of man in a world of turbulence and conflict and confusion. So, for example, Isaiah uh, chapter 17, verse 12, it says, Ah, the roar of many peoples, they roar like the roaring of the seas, the raging of the nations, they rage like the raging of mighty water. Or, Isaiah 57 Verses 20 and 21, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and as waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah describes a twisting sea serpent, a dragon called Leviathan, who is a symbol of satanic evil. So the sea is, is symbolic of the rebellious nations and the satanic powers that energize them. So with that backdrop in mind, what happens next in the vision is not surprising at all. Uh, verse 3, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. Now these four beasts we're going to see later on are representative of four world empires, four kings or kingdoms. Those words king and kingdoms often interchangeable in the book of Daniel. And we've, we've already seen something like this back in chapter 2, if you remember, where King Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of that brilliant giant statue made out of gold and silver and bronze and iron, four metals representing four kingdoms. But while Nebuchadnezzar saw the kingdoms of man as a glittering, beautiful, brilliant statue, it's interesting that Daniel is going to see the kingdoms unmasked for what they really are. Raging, ravenous, horrifying beasts. Beasts do not love. Beasts serve their own appetites. Self-centered, all about them. Even the appearance we're going to see of these beasts communicates a rebellion against the natural created order, a Chaotic disorderliness, because while in Genesis 1 you've got animals created by God after their own kind, in Daniel 7 you've got creatures that make no sense physiologically. They're like mutants. And so let's look at the first one, verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Now if Daniel's, now if I'm correct in saying that Daniel's vision of the four beasts corresponds to the vision in chapter 2 of the Colossus, this beast corresponds to the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So this beast is Babylon. Archaeologists, by the way, have found statues of winged lions in the ruins of Babylon. The lion was their national symbol. And when we find in both, both in the uh, books of Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, comparisons of Babylon to both a lion and an eagle. Look in the middle of verse 4. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. It's probably 
speaks of the humiliation and restoration of Nebuchadnezzar that we read about back in chapter 4. But what's interesting is that as quickly as this beast comes on the scene, it's, it's gone now, and, and suddenly a new beast arrives. Follow with me. It says, And behold, another beast, like a second one, or a second one like a bear, and it was raised up on one side. Now, this likely corresponds to the silver part of the statue in chapter 2, which would be the Medo-Persian Empire. There's some debate on, on why the bear is raised up on one side. I think personally, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but I think this refers to the fact that one part of the empire is dominant over the other. The Persian side was greater than the media side. And I think, I think we're going to see that um, uh, next week in chapter 8. We're going to read something that I think backs that up. But the most striking thing about the bear is its ravaging power. Verse 5 says it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. The beast is enjoying a fresh kill. Now some say this, uh, these ribs represent the three great conquests of the Medo-Persian Empire, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. I don't know. It's hard to know for sure. With apocalyptic literature, you've got to be careful not to press the details too hard. And sometimes it is easy to get so caught up in speculating over the unclear things that we lose sight of what is clear in the passage and so we miss the main points. My goal for us this morning is to help you to get the main point. I would not be surprised if there are several folks in this room who have never read Daniel chapter 7 before. And so I want, I want us to have the main point of the passage. So if you came hoping that I was going to tell you who the Antichrist was, you're going to be sadly mistaken. No man knows the day or the hour anyway. I think at the very least, if you look at this bear with, the, with, this, with these ribs in his mouth, I think at the very least it's safe to say that the ribs are a reference to the devouring conquest of this empire in general. But this beast has an in, insatiable appetite for more. Uh, and so you see in verse 5, it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. But suddenly our attention is diverted as another beast takes center stage. Verse 6, after this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. We have another mutant animal. It's like a leopard, uh, which is a beast that is known to be extremely fast, extremely agile. But this beast is even faster because it has four wings. This is meant to capture lightning speed. And this beast corresponds to the bronze part of Nebuchadnezzar's Colossus, the Greek Empire. We know through history that Alexander the Great moved very swiftly against the Medo-Persians. He overwhelmed them, and within a decade, he controlled everything from the Indus River all the way to the Nile. When he died at the age of 300 23 BC, the empire was divided among four of his generals. That's probably why the leopard has four heads. But we don't have long to contemplate this before yet another beast fills the vision. And so now things go from bad to worse. Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It's terrifying and dreadful. It, it is incomparable to anything really in, in the animal creation. 
It's got great iron teeth. Now, this is reminiscent of the iron part of Nebuchadnezzar's statue in chapter 2. And I believe this refers to the Roman Empire, which subdued Greece and the known world. And the brutality and the destructive power of this beast is unparalleled. It breaks things, and then it smashes what's left. And, you know, indeed, about the Roman Empire, there was a saying that the Romans come and make a desert and call it peace. They leave nothing left. At the height of Rome's power, the empire covered all of Europe, North Africa, Egypt, Palestine, Greece, into Asia Minor. Verse 7, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, there's lots of ideas and lots of debates about the meaning of the ten horns, but whatever we do, we need to be careful with apocalyptic literature. Again, and not dogmatically assert things that go beyond what the Scriptures explicitly say. We must not lose sight of the forest for the sake of the trees. There's a big picture that Daniel wants the exiles, both then and now, to see, and that's what I want to make sure that we understand. Verse 7, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, there's been a lot of debate about the little horn. But what is clear is that this horn is not simply a governmental power, but but an individual. He's given eyes which indicate intelligence and a speaking mouth that is boasting and bragging about himself, exalting himself. He is the embodiment and the climactic culmination of all the raging of all the turbulent waters of rebellion that have been seen in kingdom after kingdom from age to age. He is the final human enemy of God. He is anti-God, and many, including myself, believe that he is anti-Christ, the final anti-Christ. But again, let's let's step back from all of the views and debates about the details and look at the big picture. The issue for Daniel's original audience is not figuring out who or what all of these horns are. The issue is that from the time of Daniel until the very end, there will be an evil and a raging against God and against the people of God that will culminate in a final climactic outburst of unbelievable evil and wickedness. That's the point. And that's a significant message for Daniel's original audience. They are longing for freedom. They are longing for relief. They're longing for a return from exile. As a matter of fact, those exiles who would have been familiar with Jeremiah's prophecy would know that the return home would come soon, maybe even in their generation. But the striking revelation that Daniel receives is that what lies ahead for the people of God is not peace. And it's going to get worse. Horrific evil. Like savage beasts will continue to be loose in the world, raging against God and raging against the people of God. And it's going to go on throughout history. Things will get worse before they get better. And so let's go back to the stormy nighttime beach scene with Daniel. He's confronted now by the worst of all beasts. And there's this little horn that is boasting and bragging and blaspheming God. And I can imagine Daniel just covering his ears so that he will not hear such foul blasphemies. This horn is going on and on. And all Daniel can do is watch in horror and wonder, when's this going to end? 
Will anyone be able to, to stop the advance of this evil darkness in the world? And that leads us to the next section in this chapter. We've seen the horror of evil, but now we're going to be introduced to the hero of the story. The hero of the story. Suddenly, as if in a movie, the scene dramatically changes as the camera pans away from the terror of the sea, away from the raging monster, away from the noise of the wind, away from the endless verbal tirade of the little horn. And there's a shift in the scene from chaos to control, from raging to peace. Verse 9, as I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So in contrast to the storm-tossed sea, we are now transported to the throne room of God. All other kings are pushed aside and forgotten, and the Ancient of Days takes his seat. The Ancient of Days, that's a name for God that communicates eternality. God has always been, and He will always be. He's been on His throne before all of those raging beasts came on the scene, and when they are long gone, He will still be there. And, most relevant to the Jewish exiles, He's on the throne right now. No matter how bad things are, despite appearances to the contrary, God is on the throne. God is in control. The exiles are in Babylon not because God fell asleep at the switch. They're there because God controls that winged lion and uses it as a lackey to carry the Jews into captivity. In fact, there have already been hints in this chapter from the very beginning that there is a power superior to the beasts at work. In verse 4, Someone has plucked off the lion's wings, making it stand like a man, giving it a man's mind. In verse 5, somebody is giving orders to that bear to devour much flesh, and it does what it's told. In, uh, in verse 6, somebody gives dominion to the leopard. And in verse 9, we learn that it's the ancient of days. Verse 9 says, his clothing was white as snow. That speaks of purity. The hair of his head like pure wool. It speaks of wisdom. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. That speaks of judgment. He's got the wisdom to discern right from wrong. He's got the purity to make righteous judgments. He's got the power to carry out that judgment. And notice the throne. The throne has wheels. It isn't immovable and stuck in one place. It's mobile. God's throne, God's presence isn't just in Israel. God is enthroned as king even in Babylon. And in the throne room of God, there is no chaos. There is no confusion and disorder. There's no churning. There's no anxiety. If you read the throne room scene in Revelation chapter 4, you'll notice that extending from God's throne is a sea, but it's not raging and it's not churning. It's the exact opposite. It's a sea of glass. Absolute calm. Absolute stillness and peace. God's not wringing His hands. He's seated on the throne. And He's in total control. Verse 10. A stream of fire issued and came out from before Him. A thousand thousand served Him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. You don't need to get out your calculator that the point is, is this just means a lot. A lot of people. A lot of persons. Daniel 
who for so many years had to stand alone, now realizes in this vision he's not really alone. The Ancient of Days and his, his multitude of heavenly hosts have been with him all the time. That's true for all of God's people. Maybe, maybe you're going through something that, that's so hard right now, and you feel so alone. But if you are in Christ, if you're one of his people, take heart. You are never alone. But when all we think about is the sea, the turbulent, chaotic waters, the raging beasts of this world, if that's all we're gazing on, it's easy for us to panic and freak out and think that God has abandoned us or that he doesn't see our situation or that he's lost control. But when, like Daniel, our eyes are turned to focus on the reality that God is seated on his throne and that he is sovereignly working all things together for his good purposes, when we realize that and when we see that, it doesn't deny reality. It doesn't change reality. It actually clarifies reality. And it clarifies how all of God's people should view the trials and tribulations of this world. Verse 10 says, The court sat in judgment and the books were open. You see, there's going to be a day of reckoning. Accounts will be settled and the world will be called to account and evil will be judged. Now Daniel, you can imagine, must be surely transfixed by this heavenly vision. But like an uninvited guest, the sound of that stupid arrogant little horn has come back into his ears, snapping his attention back to the beast. All of this time, the horn hasn't shut up. It just keeps talking and talking and talking and talking with boastful words of self-exaltation and harsh words against God. Verse 11, I looked in because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. It's still talking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. And the body, his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. What? <laughs> That's it? That's rather anticlimactic. I mean, you're expecting this huge battle, right? This huge showdown between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Things have been building up in this chapter. We've been made to be fearful of these beasts and this horn, which is so proud and so arrogant and terrifying and earth-shattering and talking himself up and threatening everyone and everybody. And in a millisecond, it's over. You're dead. <laughs> Round one knockout. It's anticlimactic. It's supposed to be anticlimactic. Daniel 7 is meant to teach us about, yes, the horrific reality of evil and its might. But it's also meant to teach us that next to God, the power of evil is pathetically feeble. But it gets better. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So we see this figure. Unlike the beast, this is a human figure. He's like a son of man. And he's not coming out of the sea. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. He's, he's, not, a, he's not some strange mutant. He, his appearance is like a man. But, but he's more than a man. 
because he's riding the clouds. Who is this cloud rider? Psalm 104, verse 3, that Steve read earlier. Speaking of God, the psalmist says that he makes the clouds his chariots and rides on the wings of the wind. The cloud rider is none other than God himself. And so as you contemplate Daniel's vision, you see the Ancient of Days on the throne over there, okay? You see the approach of the cloud rider over there, and you're like, okay, is that God? Or is that God? And the answer is yes. And here we touch on the outskirts of the glorious doctrine of the Trinity, which teaches there is only one God, but this God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And here in Daniel 7, we see two of those persons. It reminds me of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John chapter 1 goes on to say that this Word became flesh, He became a man, and dwelt among us, and this God-man was Jesus. And Jesus' favorite title for Himself was the Son of Man. He called Himself that more than anything else. Jesus is human in the sense that He is all that humans were meant to be, but failed to be. Christ is the embodiment of what God intended in humanity. That's why He's called the second Adam. The first Adam was the first man, and and He was privileged to exercise a God-given kingdom, a God-given dominion in Eden, but in Genesis chapter 3, Adam fails. Adam, the man who was given dominion over the beast of the earth, listens to Satan who appears as a serpent, a beast of the field, and as Adam rebels against God, now the serpent has dominion over man. Adam becomes a sinner. He falls short of God's glory, and the whole human race falls with him. And every sinner replays Adam's rebellion, raging against God in selfish pride like a beast. Whether you are a world dictator or whether you are a middle schooler, your desire, apart from Christ, is to establish your own little kingdom and bring your own little world under your control, revolving around your selfish desires. And so, sinful man will never be able to bring order and peace and stability to a sinful and corrupt world. And so we are lost unless another man comes into the world to succeed where Adam failed, and that's what the Son of Man does. He reflects the glory of God perfectly. He obeys the Father without fail, and for that reason, he gets his reward, verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Some people think that maybe this this throne room scene with the Son of Man has to do with the second coming of Christ. I respectfully disagree with that. I think it actually has to do with with the ascension of Christ after He completed His work on the cross and after He rose from the dead and He ascends to the Father. He's not not coming down to earth in this vision here in chapter 7. He's approaching the throne of God riding the clouds. And and He has given His reward. He's given dominion. That's why Jesus, right when He's about to ascend to the Father, He tells the disciples, all authority 
has been given to me. And then he commissions them to go out into the world. And he can do it because he has global authority. And unlike the dominion of the four beasts, the dominion of the Son of Man is global and universal. Peoples and languages would serve him. And unlike the temporary kingdoms of man, his kingdom will never be destroyed. And Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, where God says to his anointed king, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8, which Steve read earlier, where we see the Son of Man experiencing the fullness of the dominion that Adam lost in the garden. Dominion over beast and over the world itself. And in Daniel chapter 7, we see his dominion even over evil. Even over satanically inspired beasts that come out of the sea. That's good news. But there's more. We've seen the horror of evil. We've met the hero of the story. We also see the hope of the righteous. Verse 15. As for me, Daniel... My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Now, why would he be distraught? He's just had a vision of the triumph of God. Well, surely it's not the triumph of God that disturbs him, but the fact that the triumph comes through suffering, through great tribulation. It's not that the exiles are going to get to go home soon, and it's happily ever after. Babylon will fall. But then another evil kingdom comes, and another one comes, and another one comes. And indeed, the intensity of wickedness will only get worse. Yes, God triumphs, but what's going to happen to the faithful? What's the end story for us? Verse 16. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Now, if you've got a pen or a highlighter, you may want to mark verses 17 and 18 in your Bible. Because that's the main point of the whole vision. If chapter 7 is the peak of the book of Daniel, then those two verses are the tip of the peak. It's at the, the core of what the exiles needed to know, and it's what you need to know about chapter 7. If you don't get anything else, get that. It's not just that the Son of Man will possess the kingdom, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom with Him. And the revelation of Daniel chapter 7 is that the exiles who are longing for a return to Palestine are setting their sights way too low. In fact, Romans chapter 4, verse 13 tells us that the promise that God made to Abraham was that he would be heir to the entire world, not just Canaan, not just Palestine, and that that inheritance is enjoyed not just by faithful Jews in Babylon, but by all who by faith trust in the promises of God. It's a universal, global kingdom, not restricted to Jews, but open to all peoples. And so it's not just that the Son of Man wins, but that we will triumph with Him. 
And that's important for us to know and get into our heads because that truth is not immediately obvious. Verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with his teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Despite the glorious vision of the throne of God that we saw just a moment ago, despite the declaration that the saints will be victorious with God, here they are being actually destroyed. The ones who have received the kingdom are the ones being trampled down. From all appearances, they look like losers. But the reason why that's the case is that we live in a time between times, or what the theologians call the already and the not yet. The kingdom has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and yet we look around and we still see the kingdoms of this world in all of their raging turbulence. It's not that the kingdom hasn't come. It has. Instead, it hasn't yet come in its fullness. The full consummation of everything that the kingdom will be has not yet arrived. We still wait for that. That's what Jesus means, by the way, when he says to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So Jesus, in, in, in one sentence, declares the victory but also the ongoing strife and trouble. Hebrews chapter 2 confirms that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8, having dominion over everything. And Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 says that God has left nothing outside of his control. That, that, that's total control and victory. But then right after that, the author of Hebrews says, but at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Don Carson says that the gospel is boldly advancing under the contested reign and inevitable victory of Jesus. But the reign is still contested. And this evil, apocalyptic little horn is the climax of the persecution of God's people. The Scriptures haven't promised believers their best life now. Instead, it promises that through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. And so how will the people of God find relief? How will they fully and finally experience victory? When they capture the White House with the right political party? Many Christians live that way, don't they? They put their hope in a Christian America... Don't count on it. Ultimate relief and rest for the people of God will not come until, verse 22, the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The Ancient of Days will come and He will render His verdict in favor of His people, the saints of the Most High. And it will be only then when we will enter into the fullness of our inheritance. Until then, it'll get worse before it gets better. That's pretty much the angel's answer in verse 23. 
Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And he shall think to change the times and the law. That, that by the way, is an expression of self-exaltation and self-deification. He's, he's going to be in charge, and he's going to change how things are. And they shall be given into his hand, the saints will, they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. There's some different views on this time reference and what it means. But regardless of the details, the main takeaway is that the apparent dominance of the little horn of the forces of evil is limited. It won't last forever. It'll be cut short. Why? How? Because the little horn, in all of its boastness and bravado, isn't really in charge. Verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. I'm reminded, by the way, of, a, of another uh, chapter where there's this great buildup of the forces of evil uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians, and, and the Apostle Paul is talking about the man of lawlessness, this final anti-Christ figure who is just so great and so awesome, and he's energized by the devil and all these sorts of things, and there's this great buildup, and then after that it says, and the Lord Jesus will come and kill him by the breath of his mouth. Ding dong, he's dead. That's it. That's it. Text goes on to say, in the kingdom... And the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Now, this is the third time the text has, has done this. It is mentioned that things are going to get really bad, but the saints shall possess the kingdom. It says that three times. Here's a hermeneutical principle. Repetition is important in the Bible. Treat repetition like a giant billboard. If you do that, you'll go a long way in determining the meaning of a text. God wins. The Son of Man triumphs. And we, the people of God, triumph with Him. On the other side of suffering is glory. But that begs the question, how? I mean, it makes all the sense in the world that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, would inherit the kingdoms and reign over the world. He deserves that. He, he has that by right. But how in the world do we inherit those things too? We don't deserve that. And if you're a Christian, you already know the answer. Triumph comes through suffering. And the ultimate triumph of God's people comes not through their own suffering, but through the suffering of another. Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, for rebellious subjects, paying the death penalty that we deserve. But on the other side of his suffering is glory. He triumphs over sin. He crushes death when he rises from the grave. And Jesus, as the second Adam, didn't just do the things that Adam failed to do for his own sake, but for the sake of his people. 
So just like Adam was mankind's first representative, and all who are united to Adam by birth receive what Adam receives, sin and death and the identity of a child of wrath, so Jesus, the Son of Man, the second Adam, stands as mankind's second great representative, the greatest representative. And whoever is united to Jesus by faith through birth, spiritual birth, receives what Jesus receives. He triumphs over sin and the grave, and so we triumph over sin and the grave due to our union with Christ. He's God's Son, so we become adopted sons of God due to our union with Christ. As a son, he receives an inheritance of the kingdoms. As children of the Father, we receive that inheritance as joint heirs. It's not because of our merit and our goodness and our work. It's because of his merit and his goodness and his work. We aren't worthy to receive the kingdoms, but believers become united with the one who is. And so the Apostle Peter writes that God, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. And so the message of Daniel 7, for you, believer, if you're a believer, the message is that, yes, the world is dark. Yes, the world is evil. And life for the Christian is not some sort of pie in the sky, happy, clappy, uh, reality-denying existence. In fact, if you go down to verse 28, Daniel says, here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Daniel had a sober understanding of the seriousness of this. The path for God's people into the future is tougher than he ever would have anticipated, but we see that at the end of it all. God is in control. God is with His people. God will exalt His people. God will cause His people to triumph. And the forces of evil don't have the final word. Suffering doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. The beasts are subdued. Jesus wins. Jesus reigns. So fear not, little flock, Jesus says to you in Luke chapter 12, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever and you've been living your life in rebellion against God and you think you're fine in that rebellion and you won't be called to account and everybody's free to do what everyone wants and it's gonna, just going to be that way forever, the message of Daniel 7 for you is that despite present appearances, God is in control and God is on His throne and God will render judgment and one day He will return to earth and one day you will face Him. Jesus, confronting his persecutors who would just in a few hours cheer as he's being nailed to a cross, he looks them in the eye and he says, there will come a day when you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The cloud rider will return. And if you're still raging against him like a beast, you will be destroyed. But if you cast all your hope on Him and Him alone, you will find yourself among the saints of the Most High, and you shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom with Him forever, forever, and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
as we process this 30,000-foot view of Daniel 7, I know that there are many things that we had no opportunity to touch on. And so I pray that you will bless my brothers and sisters as they dive deeper into passages like this. And I, and I pray even that an that a overview like this will, will, will help us to be less fearful of, of diving into apocalyptic literature in your word. It's all your word. We, we need the whole counsel of God. We just can't hang out in a few chapters, a few sections of the Bible that, that we feel comfortable with. It's all from you, and it's all for us. And Father, I pray that you would help us to remember above all else that you reign, that you are on the throne, that the Son of Man has dominion over all, and that you will win, and therefore our victory is guaranteed as well, as we are more than conquerors in him. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.